Well, good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. I'm glad we have you with us this morning. So if you will, turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. This is our second week looking at this genealogy. I'm going to read this entire chapter. We looked at this genealogy last week and we really stopped with Enoch and talked about the story of Enoch and the glimmer of hope he gives us. But today we're going to take it all the way through to Noah. So Genesis 5, I'm going to read 1 through 32 again so you hear the whole context. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord is cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would receive this as what it is, the word of the Lord. 
we believe what the Apostle Paul said, that all Scripture is God-breathed, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit and is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We know, we confess that this is true of these genealogies in Scripture as well. We pray your Spirit would be at work to give us ears to hear what he's saying to the churches through this text of Scripture. Not only to Moses as he speaks to the generation of Israel that came out of the Exodus, but to your church in every generation you speak here. May we hear what you're saying. Repent, believe, and honor your son in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we began the second genealogy of Genesis last week, and I reminded you that Genesis is actually arranged around ten genealogies. You see the first genealogy in Genesis 2 and verse 4. If you look there, we have a prologue of Genesis, if you will, chapter 1 of the creation and the seven days, and then you get the first genealogy in Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And as that genealogy is announced, the genealogy, or if you will, the history of the heavens and the earth as told through the story of man, namely Adam and Eve, God's creating them in the garden, God's giving them a kind of probation with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpent coming into the garden and deceiving them so that they listen to the voice of the serpent rather than the voice of God, and they sinned and fell and received the curse of death. As we read all that, it's all a part of that first genealogy, as is the promise of the seed of the woman to come, as is the story of Cain and Abel that follows, and then the, if you will, the prequel to the next genealogy that comes at the end of Genesis 4, as we hear that Adam and Eve had another son, Seth. And that forms a kind of preview to what's coming in the second genealogy. And the second genealogy of Genesis starts in Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now we'll look at the third and the fourth genealogy, but I'll just give you one more example so you see what I mean by it's arranged around genealogies. Look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is where we're going to get the next major movement in the story, if you will, of the book of Genesis. You're going to get that, those generations, and then you're going to have the Tower of Babel, or Babel. So now you have, right here in Genesis 5, the story that goes from Adam to Noah, or that genealogy, followed by the story of Noah and the flood and the ark. And you're going to pick up another major genealogy in chapter 10, the genealogy of Noah's three sons, and that's going to lead you into the Tower of Babel and the fall there. And so we see how the book is arranged around these. These genealogies are meant to teach us. They are God's word, and thus they're worthy of our time to slow down and consider. I mean, most people, when you come to genealogy, they're like, oh, this is my favorite part of reading the Bible. You're just not there. But actually, when you slow down and learn what they're saying, they become deeply enriching 
to your faith, and at least for me, pretty exciting to spend time in them. So last week, as we looked at this genealogy, I emphasized the relentless drumbeat of the curse of death in the genealogy. You keep hearing in every generation, save Enoch and Noah, you hear in every story or every refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's the drumbeat of the curse of death that's come as a result of the fall into sin. We keep hearing that refrain. And while I talked about that, I spent some time on the the sort of bright glimmer of hope of death's defeat in the story of Enoch, who walked with God and he was not for God took him. He ascended directly into heaven. I pointed that out. This morning I want to look at two additional emphases in this genealogy. So this will be our last week in this genealogy, and then we'll move to the story that follows the genealogy. But two additional emphases in this genealogy. Here's what they are. First, I want to consider that the genealogies establish the progression of the history of man with a particular focus on redemptive history. In other words, they establish the progression of the history of man, but they're really focused on the story that is unfolding that brings us to the Redeemer, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Second, now you're going to say these sound similar. They do. That's intentional. Second, I want to press into that a bit more and say these genealogies are actually leading us directly to the seed of the woman, promised in Genesis 3.15. They're pointing us and leading us there. So let's look at each of these emphases in the text, which are really intricately related. I divide them just for the purpose of working through this. The first point I said or emphasis I was making is that the genealogy establishes the progression of the history of man with a particular focus on redemptive history. Now, there are a couple of anti-genealogies in Genesis. What I mean by that is they're genealogies of telling us about the history of the seed of the serpent, like the history of Ishmael or the genealogy of Ishmael, the genealogy of Esau. We'll see those. Last chapter, it's not called a genealogy, but you see the birth of Cain's sons the seed of the serpent. So we see that going through. The genealogy of Genesis 5 focuses on the progression of the history of man to Noah, to the flood, and to the new creation after the flood. If you will, there is, in a sense, a antediluvian, big term for a world before the flood. There's a world before the flood, and then there's a kind of post-Diluvian, a world after the flood that we see in Scripture. And this genealogy is leading us up to, or explain to us, the world before the flood, and then it picks up the story of the flood, and then the world that begins to emerge just after the flood. And so we're looking at that as we go through. Let me explain what I mean. This genealogy takes us from Genesis 5-1 all the way through 6-8. So go down to Chapter 6 and verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. You notice you have another genealogy. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So the second genealogy is walking us through the birth of ten sons. From Adam to Noah, Noah being the tenth son. And then it doesn't tell us much more about Noah except he had three sons. 
And then we hear this story in Genesis 6-1 and following. Look at Genesis 6-1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to men, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. And they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, you have a genealogy going through ten sons, from Adam all the way to the tenth son or tenth man, Noah, through the line of Seth, and then you have a story about the condition of the earth at that time, in the time of Noah. You have a story about it. And then this third genealogy begins. And what's the third genealogy? Again, 6-9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had what? Three sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Look back at chapter 5 and verse 32. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered who? Shem, and Ham, and Japheth. In other words, this third genealogy that picks up in 6 9 is really an expansion on the second genealogy. Do you see that? We're not moving actually beyond Noah and his three sons. We're going to pick up more information or more of the story about Noah and his three sons. Specifically, the fact that Noah and his three sons are going to be saved on the ark through the floodwaters of God's judgment because of the wickedness of man on earth. And so we hear that story. Thus, we can argue that the following section, if you will, 6-9 all the way through the end of chapter 9 belongs as a subset of the second genealogy. In fact, if you remember, all the genealogies in Genesis 5, except for Enoch and Noah, end this way. He lived X number of years. And he died. Well, where does that happen for Noah? Go to Genesis 9. Genesis 9. We'll see the end in some way of the second genealogy of which the third genealogy is a part. Genesis 9, verse 28. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Thus, everything... Here's what I'm setting up for you, and I want you to understand in the bracketing of this book, this section of Genesis. Everything between Genesis 5-1... And Genesis 9, 28, 29 is telling us the story of Noah. The tenth son from Adam through the godly line of Seth. The story of the wickedness of man. The story of the judgment of the flood. The story of the salvation of mankind through Noah's family on the ark. And the new creation that's coming after the flood. Look at Genesis 9-1. When I say the new creation that's coming after the flood. Look at Genesis 9-1. And God blessed Noah and his sons 
and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You guys remember this refrain? Genesis 1.28, God made man in his image, male and female, he created them, right? In the likeness of God, he made them. And then you go in Genesis 1.28, what does it say? And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So are you hearing the emphasis that's being brought out in the life of Noah? God is telling the story of the history of man before the flood, of man's wickedness, of God's judgment against sin, and of God's salvation of mankind on the ark. God's salvation of mankind is coming, notice, coming through a man. And it's a salvation that's coming through judgment. They are saved through the flood waters of judgment on the ark, through this man, Noah. And it's meant to be a type of some greater fulfillment or anti-type. In other words, Noah is a type of Christ. It reminds us of the work of Christ. Christ saved us through being judged in our place. So keep your hand in Genesis 5 and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I don't want you to think I'm just making stuff up. I want you to see that I'm just telling you what the apostles are already saying. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. It's near the end of your Bible if you're not familiar with it. 1 and 2 Peter, then you have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and then Revelation. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Hear what Christ did. He suffered. He's talking about the work of Christ upon the cross. He suffered once for sins. For us, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ, the righteous one, suffered for sins, or the righteous one suffered for the unrighteous. He's the righteous one, we're the unrighteous ones. And he suffered for us. That, what's the purpose or the goal of that? That he might bring us to God. In other words, we were separated from God because we were unrighteous sinners. And so Christ suffered in our place, the righteous one for the unrighteous, that we might be brought to God. We were no longer separated from him, but brought near to him in Christ. He goes on. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see, he died and was resurrected. In which he went, it's by the spirit. I think, by the way, The spirit there should be capitalized. He was descended from David, Romans 1.3. Descended from David according to the flesh, but exalted as the son of God by his resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Right, he's vindicated through the spirit, 1 Timothy chapter 3, in his resurrection as being holy, righteous, undefiled. That's what he's saying here. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive or resurrected in the spirit, in which that same spirit that resurrected him, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. This is a little bit odd, but I want to go on a minute. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What he's getting at here is that Christ by the Spirit, was preaching to men in Noah's day to repent of their sins 
and trust in the promise of the seed of the woman. Those men did not listen to Noah, and now they're in prison. They're condemned. Enoch prophesied to men in that day. We heard that in Jude 14 and 15. Jude 14 and 15 tells us Enoch, the seventh son of Adam, prophesied in that day about the judgment that was to come. Noah also prophesied. Christ, by the Spirit, prophesied through him. Now you say, well, how do you know that? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And this isn't going to be an entire exposition of this passage in 1 Peter 3, but I want to show you this. I'm getting this from Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, and look down at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the salvation that is ours in Christ, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. In other words, the Old Testament prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours in Christ searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring, listen to this, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. In other words, the Old Testament prophets were inquiring What time or place is it going to be that the Christ is going to suffer and resurrect? When is that going to happen? And how did they know that? Because the Spirit of Christ was in them prophesying that. Just as the Spirit of Christ was in Noah, it was revealed to them, verse 12, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven Things into which angels long to look. So Christ was preaching by the Spirit through Noah about the seed of the woman who would suffer and rise from the dead. About the coming judgment and salvation in Christ. Now back to 1 Peter 3 and let's look expressly at verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. That's Noah, his wife, his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their three wives. The eight persons who were brought on the ark safely through the water. Baptism, now this is going to be strange to you maybe. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God For a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Here's what he's saying Our baptism corresponds to the ark, in that we are going into the flood waters of judgment in Christ. We are, as Paul will say, crucified with Christ. And we come out of the flood waters safely in Christ. We are, as Paul will say, resurrected with Christ. And Noah's ark, going through the flood waters of God's judgment, is a type of the salvation that we have in Christ. They even land on Mount Ararat, where Noah leads them in worship. Christ ascends to heavenly Mount Zion. He goes to a mountain too after going through the flood waters of judgment for us and resurrecting to Mount Zion where he carries his atoning sacrifice 
and he brings us in there with him. In this way, Noah is a type of Christ. Noah is a key figure in the development of the history of the seed of the woman. We don't often think of baptism as a picture or sign of judgment, but it is. Not just of God's grace, but also of the flood. The waters of God's judgment that we've been delivered through in Christ. The seed of the woman is being forwarded from Adam through Seth down to Noah. And this leads us to our second emphasis in the genealogy this morning. The genealogy leads us to the seed of the woman. Look back at Genesis chapter 5 again and look at verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he had fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. This is fascinating. We need to compare the Lamech of Seth's line. Remember, Adam has another son, Seth, and this is the line that we're reading about, Seth's line. The Lamech that comes from Seth's line with the Lamech that comes from Cain's line. You're meant to compare them. You're supposed to compare these two Lemmics. Remember in Genesis 4, there's a Lemmick as well. He's quite different. But there's a kind of contrast that's being picked up on here intentionally. So look at Genesis 4 and verse 18. We went through this text, but I remind you of it. To Enoch was born Erod. And Erod fathered Mahujael. And Mahujael fathered Methushael. And Methushael fathered Lamech. Now go down to verse 23. Oh no, actually let's read 19 because you can't miss this. And Lamech took two wives. That's important. Why is it important? Because Lamech is the first bigamist in the history of the Bible. He is violating Genesis 2.24 as the seed of the serpent does. He's violating Genesis 2.24 that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Not the three or the four shall become one flesh. The two. Male and female. One flesh. And so he violates that as the first bigamist in the Bible. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, And the name of the other was Zillah. I told you when we walked through this. It was like something like pretty face and sweet voice. That's what his wives are named. Which tends to sort of give you a tip of the hat to the fact that Lamech is given to sensuality in some way. He looks at the externals more than anything else. It goes on in verse 23. Lamech said to his two wives, or his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. In other words, he's going to brag. He's going to boast in front of his two wives. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. See, the biblical vindication of justice is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? A life for a life. What Lamech is saying is, if a man bruises me, I'll kill him. That's what happened. A young man bruised me, I killed him. It's a kind of wicked form of justice. He's leading a city. So really, actually, what you're finding is an unjust tyrant here. He's an unjust tyrant. 
And so you go on, it says, if Cain's revenge, verse 24, is sevenfold, in other words, that's the revenge of God against anyone who would kill Cain, then Lemmick's is 77-fold. He's essentially bragging that he somehow is more just than God. Now compare that with Genesis 5.25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lemmick. Now verses 28 through 31. When Lemmick had lived 180 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, from the painful toil of our hands. Lemmick lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lemmick were 777 years, and he died. I don't know if you picked up on some of the contrast. For example, Lemmick from Cain's line is born from Methushel. Lemmick from Seth's line is born from Methuselah. And there's a kind of poetic assonance there on purpose. There's a contrast they're wanting you to pick up. Cain's Lemmick is prideful, self-exalting, a bigamist, a murderous tyrant who avenges 77-fold. Seth's Lemmick is fathered by Methuselah. He's humble, God-exalting. He trusts the promises of God, and he lives 777 years. And there's a kind of intentional poetry that's happening there to bring them together. Now, I want to look expressly at Lemmick's confession of faith, or Seth's Lemmick's confession of faith. So look at Genesis 5.29. He fathers a son. He calls the name of his son Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, Lemmick is referencing the curse of Genesis 3.15. Out of the ground, this one shall bring us relief or rest from the painful toil of our hands, from our work or painful toil. Look at Genesis 3.17. You'll see that he's commenting on that. Genesis 3.17, Lemmick's commenting there. God curses Adam, and to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife rather than the voice of God, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Lemek believes what's happening here when he picks up this curse and says, Noah is the one who's going to bring us relief. From the curse on the ground. The one who's going to bring us rest from the curse on the ground. Lemmick in that is believing that Noah is the answer to the curse. He's believing that Noah in some way is the answer to the curse. Lemmick is believing Genesis 3.15. Again, look back there. I'm going to take you to Genesis 3.15 until you've all memorized it. And you get the point that this is the first Gospel promise in the Bible. It's the mother promise from which all other promises come. Genesis 3.15, as God curses the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
when Lamech looks at Noah and says, I'm going to name him rest or comfort or relief from the curse on the ground, Lamech is looking at Noah and saying, through this one, the seed of the woman is coming. Somehow, he's the answer to Genesis 3.15, the promised seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Noah, in other words, is prophetically named by Lamech as the son who will give rest to the ground. He's the son who will give rest to the ground. Lamech sees Noah as a progression in the promise of the seed of the woman. Lamech, like Seth's Enoch before him, is prophesying to the people prior to the flood. You have three prophets in this text. Enoch, who prophesies. We're told that in Jude 14 and 15. Lamech, who's prophesying before the flood. This is the one who will give relief to the ground or rest to the ground. And Noah, who we know prophesies to the people. So Lamech is naming Noah with a name that sounds like rest or comfort or relief. And in doing so, he's prophesying. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but the birth of a son is often the occasion for prophecy in the Bible. The birth of a son is often the occasion for prophecy in the Bible. So the birth of Isaac. Think of the birth of Isaac. What does Sarah, his mother, do? She prophesies. Genesis 21, 10 through 12. Or think of the birth of Jacob. What does Rebekah, his mother, do? She prophesies. Genesis 25, 23. Or think of Samuel. What does Hannah, his mother, do? She prophesies. 1 Samuel 2, 1 and following. Or think of the birth of John the Baptist. What does his father, Zechariah, do? He prophesies. Luke 1, 67. Or think of the birth of Christ. What does Mary, his mother, do? She prophesies. Luke 1, 46, the Magnificat. Why do these people prophesy at a birth announcement? Why do they prophesy at the birth of sons? They do so because the Holy Spirit has told them that their son plays some important role in the progression of the coming of the seed of the woman. Their son plays some role in that. They're all believing. In other words, what I'm saying is, all these people prophesy at the birth of their sons because by the Spirit they're believing the promise of Genesis 3.15. Noah is in the line of sons through whom the seed of the woman is coming. In fact, Noah is the tenth son in the genealogy in Genesis 5. He's the tenth son. And notice one more item, Genesis 5.32. Just look there briefly again. Noah fathers three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So unlike the others, they all father one son. You guys remember that? Now they have other sons and daughters, but none of the sons are named. Noah is the only one who fathers three sons who are named. He's the tenth son from Adam through the line of Seth. Now look at Genesis 11, because I want you to hear this emphasis of the tenth son and three sons being picked up in the tenth son as a progression of Genesis 3.15. 
So look at Genesis 11 and verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Here's another genealogy. Shem is one of Noah's three sons. Noah's the tenth son. Shem is one of his three sons. Now, I'm not going to read this whole genealogy. I just want to go to the tenth son. That's where I want to go. Look down at verse 26. We'll walk there. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Again, in this genealogy, you get a list of one son per guy, and he dies, or it passes on. One son, one son, he has other sons and daughters. Now you get to Terah, who fathers Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Again, we hear about three sons coming from a man, namely Terah. Terah is the tenth son from Noah, the second Adam. And like Noah, he has three sons. But more importantly, we need to recognize that Abram, who we will later hear renamed as Abraham, is the tenth son from Shem, the godly and blessed son of Noah. If you remember, Shem is the one who's blessed by God of the three sons, and Abraham is the tenth son of Shem. And from here, the story of Genesis will focus on this man, Abraham, from Genesis 12 and following. But the focus is clear. I hope you're following this. We're meant to look for the seed of the woman, moving from Adam through Seth, through Noah, through Abraham. So we're meant to look. The author of Genesis, Moses, is telling us there is a seed of the woman and there is a seed of the serpent. And we want to watch the development of those two seeds, their opposition to one another. And we're watching the seed of the woman looking for the one who would come, our Savior, Christ our Lord. So these genealogies that go through Scripture do not just function as some kind of boring list of names that slow down your Bible reading, that you skim over really quickly. They aren't just genealogies by sort of nerdy people who like to do really meticulous note-taking of their family lines. These genealogies are framing the story of man and his redemption in the coming of Christ. So look at Luke 3.23. You see a genealogy in Matthew and also in Luke. Let's look there. Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're going to look at Luke 3. This is after his baptism, the baptism of Christ, and just before his temptation in the wilderness. Luke inserts a genealogy. I want you to notice verse 23. I will not read this entire genealogy, but I'm going to pick up on verse 23 and then the last section of it. Luke 3, 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Okay, so we're going to start with Jesus and we're going to work backwards to the genealogy. This is kind of a reverse genealogy, if you will. Let's go to where it leads. Drop down to verse 31. The son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg. This is the genealogy in Genesis 11, by the way. 
the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, and, and chapter 5 as well, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Do you hear it? Do you see the good news that's being announced to you in these genealogies? Even as God cursed us for sin, he graciously made the first gospel promise that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. He would be the final Adam. And in the genealogies of the Old Testament into the gospels, we are tracing that line of that promise of the seed of the woman who would come from Genesis 3.15. We're tracing that line through the sons of Adam, through Seth, through Noah, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through David, all the way to the Christ. The final Adam. He would be the one who saves us from the curse of sin and death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, For as by a man came death, in other words, as by Adam came death, by a man, by Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Do you remember that? God formed him from the dust of the earth and breathed the breath of life into him. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It's not just that he has a body from dust like us. It's he's a man who's incarnated the Son of God, who's resurrected and by the Spirit not only is alive, but breathes life into us. He's a life-giving spirit. The first Adam could not give you life. Only the second Adam can. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. In other words, the natural man, Adam, came first, not the spiritual man, Christ, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. So the question is this. Do you trust in Christ, the final Adam, the one who breathes life into your dead heart, the man from heaven? Are you looking to him? Are you hoping in him? Or do you continue to be identified with Adam, the man of the earth, the man of the dust, the one who brought to us sin and death? Listen, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. The whole story of the Bible through these genealogies is like, is basically asking one central question. Do you stand with, are you in the seat of the serpent who rejects Christ? Or do you stand with, are you in the seat of the woman 
who is the Christ. I urge you to trust in Christ and know your salvation in him. Let me conclude with this. As those who are born of women, we are born into sin and death. We are born into the first Adam. And like the first Adam, we continue violating God's law and sinning. We continue in that. We live for ourselves. We're self-sufficient. We're self-exalting. We are the ones we care most about. Our eyes are set here on the earth, on the things that are here. They dazzle us and capture our attention and keep hold of us as idols we worship. God will not tolerate that, does not tolerate that. The flood is a picture of the fact that while God is patient or long-suffering, he is not forever suffering. His patience does run out. His anger and wrath do come and turn on us in our sin and will condemn you eternally in hell. I don't say that to you because it gives me pleasure to say it. I don't say that to you because I hope that for anyone. I hope that, I pray that happens to no one. But you're born in Adam. You're born, if you will, in some sense, on the team of the seed of the serpent. And your only hope of salvation is to look to Christ, the seed of the woman. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. That's what he came to do. He came as man to save us from our sins, to be the second or the final Adam, the one who would keep God's law, who would honor him in all things, the one who would be tempted in every way, yet without sin, who was holy, innocent, undefiled, who went to the cross and on the cross suffered the floodwaters of God's wrath for our sin in our place and rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And everyone who trusts in him is forgiven their sins. We are, if you will, carried on that ark who is Christ into heaven with him. So look to him and be saved. Believers, if you're looking to him, look to him more. Ask the Spirit to cause you to rest in him more. No, he is the one who brings rest. He is the one who brings that. He's the one who resolves the curse. Trust him. Look to him. Cast yourself upon him. Stop trusting yourself. That said, let me pray. Father, we ask that we would trust Christ. We give thanks that you promised him, even as you cursed us for our sin. You promised there would be a seed of the woman who would come. We give thanks that you progressively revealed from Genesis 3.15 through the rest of Scripture, the coming of that seed of the woman, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would cast ourselves upon him, that we would rest in him, that you would make us more and more into the image of the man of heaven and less and less in the image of the man of dust. 
that our eyes would be set in heaven where Christ is, that we would not be distracted by the glimmering things here on earth. We would trust in him. We pray for those who do not yet look to him that you would give them the gift of faith that they might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.